The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. And while you don't get to see him on camera or hear him in our audio versions, he does most of the work behind the scenes on the podcast. Today's episode is episode number 279, although if you try and keep track of the numbers, they might go a little wonky because we did an interview recently. We're probably going to put it up out of order because I think it's that important. But number-wise, today is 279, and we do have an interview today. Just a reminder to please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have an interest in advertising, we have over a half a million downloads now. So if advertising um, to that to our niche, which is people who have an interest in the area of addiction, if that is something you're interested in, well, reach out to us and talk to us about it. Also check out our YouTube channel because since January 2020, we have been videoing our interviews and um, subscribe to that channel and give us a thumbs up. When you give us a good rating, it helps Google, it helps people find us. Like Google will put us up when people search for addictions on podcasts and a podcast on addiction. Hello. And that's what we want because we want people to find us and to get some of the messages of hope and help that we put out. Today's interview is an interview with a gentleman named John Brownlee. If you watched the Dope Sick miniseries docudrama on Hulu, then you will know that John Brownlee it plays the boss of Rick Mountcastle, who is played by Peter Sarsgaard, and John Brownlee in the series is played by Jake McDorman. If you are a Jake McDorman fan, then you already know that. John Brownlee is a former federal prosecutor whose prosecution and conviction of Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of the widely abused opioid OxyContin, was portrayed in the hit Hulu series Dope Sick, starring Michael Keaton, Rosario Dawson, and Jake McDorman. He was appointed U.S. State's Attorney for the Western District of Virginia in 2001 by President George W. Bush and served in that position with great distinction for nearly seven years. After his over a decade of service at the U.S. Department of Justice, he became a criminal defense attorney and successfully defended numerous individuals and corporations, including former Governor Bob McDonnell. Prior to law school, he served on active duty in the U.S. Army in the infantry and in the Judge Advocate General the Judge Advocate General Corps, U.S. Army Reserves, that's JAG. And he is a graduate of the Army's Airborne and Ranger programs. I am interested in talking to Mr. Brownlee because I want to get um, more skinny on what went down in the whole Purdue Pharma court case. So without further ado, let's talk to John Brownlee. John Brownlee, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Absolutely. John, just as just by way of background, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, how you mm -hmm. got into law, like what made you want to be a lawyer. And right. yeah, take us, tell us about you. So um, I was an Army brat. 
Uh, my father uh, was from West Texas, a town called Odessa, Texas. Uh, my mother was from a small town in Wyoming called Casper, and they went to University of Wyoming um, <clears throat> where they met. And then um, uh, after college, uh, my father went into the military, um, was at the 101st Airborne in uh, 1962, kind of during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and then um, I was born in 1965. My dad was actually in Ranger School when I was born. Um, and then that kind of took us on a lot of different posts throughout the country and overseas. Um, and then as we, as I entered high school, we moved to Northern Virginia. My father was stationed at the Pentagon. And so um, I went to high school here in, in right outside of Washington, DC. And then I got an ROTC scholarship to go to college, um, went to a small uh, private school in Virginia called Washington and Lee. Um, and then when I was finished with school, I went into the military and did my four year uh, commitment. And so I was an infantry officer like uh, my father, not nearly as good, but uh, I did that and <clears throat> learned a lot. It was really kind of an important development. Um, I went to ranger school and airborne school and those things. Um, and then when my commitment was up, I got out um, and went to law school uh, at uh, William and Mary on the eastern part of Virginia. What made you um, want to be a lawyer? No, I guess I'd read some books, uh, kind of watched it, uh, movies and things. It always interested me, intrigued me, uh, kind of from a very young age. We didn't have any lawyers in the family, but it was always something that I felt I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I would go into the military. That was kind of an important family uh, tradition, I guess, that I would do that. And um, and then when my commitment was done, um, that I could go on to other schooling and, and did. And I'm really glad I did. Um, I remember when I was in law school, so many of my classmates' parents had been lawyers, or and I had none of that, so I was a little bit behind, but uh, tried to catch up. But uh, yeah, that's what really interested me, uh, just pursuing the law and kind of what I had read or watched. Okay. I was going to say, were you reading Grisham? Is that what got you interested? I did read some Grisham. I think he kind of came out uh, when I was in law school, but uh, oh, okay. you know, Kill a Mockingbird was always a great one um, that, yeah. that I read. Uh, or my, maybe my parents read it to me pretty young. Um, That's a great inspiration. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. yeah. Great book. Did you have any interest? Like, did you know what kind of law you wanted to do? Did you want to be a defense attorney, a prosecuting attorney? Um, did you have any idea about that, or just? Yeah, I mean, I think as I got into law school, um, being a prosecutor really interested me. I remember after my first, um, after my second, uh, I guess it was after my first year, I interned in a Commonwealth attorney's office in uh, a little uh, county in Virginia called Isla White County. <clears throat> and the Commonwealth attorney's name was Parker Council. What a great name for a lawyer. <laughs> yep. And, um, and, and he really, I, I got to kind of tag along with him for a summer and I watched him and learned a lot and kind of gained in more interest in that. And, and then when I graduated, before I graduated, I got a clerkship with a federal judge in Roanoke, uh, a guy named Sam Wilson, um, and I worked for him for two years, and he was fantastic. And so really through that process, um, really decided that's what I wanted to do. I had good professors in evidence and criminal law when I was in law school that kept the interest going, but that was kind of it. Interesting. Interesting. So, okay, so... Give it so then you were in the um, sorry, I have to look at my notes, I'm really bad. So, you how did you become a federal prosecutor? 
Right. So I, um, when my clerkship was over with Judge Wilson, I went to a small firm in Roanoke, um, Virginia. <clears throat> it was a great firm, really great people, but I, I knew I wanted to get into the courtroom. And so I applied for U.S. attorney's offices throughout the country and um, got an offer from Eric Holder, who was the United States attorney in D.C. at the time. And so, uh, you know, you really start at the bottom there. I mean, I, I, I did appeals first and then did misdemeanors and then felonies and you kind of work your way up. Um, but I really learned how to build a case. I learned how to work in the grand jury. I learned how to talk to juries, talk to judges. Um, it was a, I was there about four years. It was just a great learning experience, probably the best I've ever had. Wow. Um, and met some wonderful people um, and wonderful judges. So it was a great opportunity. It sounds like you get a good apprenticeship in that particular office. Do you, you know really what I mean? Do. Yeah, yeah the, it's a unique office in the sense because DC is not a state. The federal prosecutors handle everything. So my first trial was a fight outside of a bar, right? I mean, it was that kind of stuff. And uh, you do a lot of domestic violence cases, he said, she said, which are which are tough cases, right? A yeah. lot of time your witnesses don't want to be there. Yeah. Um, and then you do a lot of narcotics cases and you learn that process. Um, and so it is, uh, you know, you walk into court, you have a lot of trials. So I had done a lot of jury trials very quickly. Um, and, you know, through through trial and error, as they say, you learn. And I hope I did. And uh, and, and really watching other people who right. were a lot better than I was, but they were, <laughs> they were really great. Oh. So I did that for four years. And so when I came out of that, that process after four years, I had done a lot of jury trials. I had been on my feet a lot as a, as a trial lawyer. Um, and I had been able to kind of watch and learn from some of the best. Wow. That's awesome. I think that's, I can imagine that that probably helped you with the next chapter that I want to talk about. How, so. did, how did you first become aware of possible fraudulent marketing? I'm going to make that sound really politically correct. I could say it sure. other ways from my viewpoint, but how did right. you become aware of Purdue and what they were doing? So when my time as, as an assistant U.S. attorney, when President Bush was elected in 2000, um, I, um, I really wanted to be the United States attorney. You know, as you know, in our system, there are 94 judicial districts throughout the United States, and each one has a U.S. attorney that's appointed by the president, um, and then a lot of assistant U.S. attorneys, which I had been in D.C., um, who work for that U.S. attorney. And so I really wanted to be U.S. attorney. I was pretty young at the time. I think I was 35, 36, 36, I guess, when I was appointed. Um, which was very young and still by other standards pretty much is. Do you apply? So you apply and say, I you want do. to be, no? You, when the president was elected, I notified my senators, uh, okay. Senator Warner, John Warner of Virginia and George okay. Allen at the time of Virginia, um, that I wanted to do it. And I went through the process. I interviewed multiple times, interviewed at the Justice Department and was very blessed to have been picked. Um, I think the fact that I had clerked in the district, that I had been a federal prosecutor, um, that I had been in the military. I think those things, I was a little bit older, even though I was only out of law school about four years, I was a little bit older than some others. Um, I guess I was out of law school about six years. And um, so I got appointed and, and was sworn in on August 30th of 01. Okay. Um, about 10 days later, 9-11 happened. <laughs> yeah. So it really changed how the Justice Department was, uh, so its mission um, but, you know, before I was appointed, I did a lot of studying and reading the district and what was going on. 
And, and if you look at, go back and look at some of those articles, there was a stream of articles about Oxycontin mm -hmm. and about the crime that was around that. Um, like every, I think every pharmacy in Russell County, Virginia had been uh, robbed, mm -hmm. right? And the days of leaving your doors unlocked were gone. Huh. And it was really hitting at that time. You know, it had been introduced in the 90s. And by that time, it was really getting to be bad. Um, and when I talked to lawyers, you know, they were prosecuting doctors. Um, and so it was kind of on the radar, not, not big time. And then of course, 9-11 happened. So we all kind of started focusing on international terrorism and all those things. Um, we focused a lot on just violent crime. Um, it was, an, it was a, uh, an area of focus for the administration. So we did a lot of felons with firearm cases. We did a lot of violent crime cases, kidnappings and all that stuff. Um, but, uh, but the Oxycontin was just there and there was a lot of violence around it. Um, and so when I met with Rick and Randy and, and one of the things Dopesig does that pretty accurately, I would, you know, travel the district. I drove a lot. Um, it's 143 miles from my house in Roanoke to Abingdon's office. I knew it well. Um, and I remember meeting with Rick and Randy and they kind of told me about it. Um, it was very early. Um, but I was like, yeah, let's see what's there. I mean, we've done, we prosecuted the doctors and the street guys and the pharmacies and the pharmacists, but there seems to me this, this problem is more pervasive than that. And so um, we authorized the subpoenas in, in December of 02 that really began the investigation. Right. And I think, I, th I hope I'm not talking out of school, but I think I remember yeah. Rick saying that because of 9-11, they kind they were a little bit kind of on their own because some of the re most of the resources kind of had to go in a different direction. I think that's right. A lot of federal agents at that time were interviewing witnesses related to international terrorism. You know, if you look at the Western District of Virginia, we have Virginia Tech, big university. We have UVA, we have um, Radford, um, a lot of other uh, public and private schools, and so the FBI and ATF and a lot of those folks were out doing interviews of potential. Uh, uh, you know, without related to those issues. Um, but again, this district always had a, a history of that the prosecutors themselves were very active. Right. Um, a lot of offices, you know, the prosecutors stay inside and the agents go build the cases and bring it to them. Um, it's not how I was taught. Um, and I think that Rick and Randy and many others, um, Tom Bondurant, who was a criminal chief, certainly was the leader of, of this, that you got to get out of that office and you got to go talk to people. And, and that's how you find out what's really going on. And, and so once we authorized those subpoenas, they started that. And, and, and the, I thought the movie did a good job of kind of showing how these prosecutors really work out in the field. Right. And at what point when they were bringing you information and, and reporting to you what they found, at mm -hmm. what point could you see, wow, this is, this is going to be big or this is possibly bigger than maybe than you had thought even. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's incremental. It's little pieces of information. And these are, um, you know, these were very experienced prosecutors. Um, and, but none of us had kind of done anything like this before. And so, um, you know, I think when you start getting information about FDA officials doing certain things, um, when you start to talk to people on the ground about, how people are reacting to the, the Oxycontin. And you start to see doctor's offices with lines out of them. You hear about the pill mills. Um, you start to see some of the marking and materials come in. 
you know, it just starts to build. And I don't think any of us anticipated it, it became quite the case that it was, at least certainly not for me. But I think over time, you start to realize that this was just one massive lie about a product. Um, and because of that lie, it got really out into the bloodstream of the community and it caused a ton of harm, um, direct harm and indirect harm. So, you know, you could see it build over time. I was going to say, you were really dealing with the big guns. When you talk about dealing with a company like Purdue Pharma, you're talking about like a multi-billion dollar company. And right. then when you factor in whatever the FDA's part was in that, I mean, you're you're starting to get into the big guns there, John. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, at that time, I, I never really saw it that way. I think that, you know, the real power there is the power of a federal grand jury. But a federal grand jury can demand records, demand videos, demand testimony. Um, and, and I don't care where it's based. It is a powerful tool. If you have the judges to back you up and you follow the rules and, and these prosecutors were doing that, um, you can really build a case if you're willing to put in the legwork. Um, and, you know, Rick and Randy, I thought that the, the movies uh, or the, the episodes described that and showed that really well of just their work ethic. Yep. Um, their own integrity, um, their willingness to kind of, you know, follow the rules and do it right. It's hard. There are no real shortcuts. <laughs> um, and, and they did that. And um, that's what was expected of them and were able to build a successful case. Right. Did you get, were you in on the chicken meeting? I was. Yes. <laughs> Tell yeah. us just about that. Cause for anybody yeah. that didn't listen to our interview with Rick and hasn't seen dope sick, it's a pretty funny story. You know, the way the Justice Department works is that the deputy attorney general who's the, who is kind of like the COO of the Justice Department, right? The, okay. the, the attorney general is the CEO and, the, and the, the DAG, as we call him or her, is the, is the COO. And U.S. attorneys really work for the DAG. I mean, we're appointed by the president, but, but at the end of the day, we work for the DAG. And I knew Jim Comey. He had been a United States attorney in New York, very successful, uh, very dynamic Um and so when we got mess when we got word that um, he was having problems with what we were doing, you know, I had friends at his office who was sending me emails telling me the boss is upset because you know he knew all these guys, the lawyers for Purdue, and they were feeding him information and basically describing us as a bunch of crazy country bumpkins down there. And so I wanted to explain to him that we were following the rules, that we were doing this right. Um, and that, uh, you know, we had read all the manuals and all the policies and we weren't violating. So that was really my intent in going up there to talk to him. Um, you know, you're never quite sure you can walk into a meeting like that and be a former U.S. attorney pretty quickly if, if things go wrong. <laughs> yep. And uh, and so when he came out and asked us why we were prosecuting the chicken guy, it, it, it kind of caught us all off guard a little bit. I had grown up in the area, so I knew about Frank Purdue, and he had these really funny commercials. And it was clear that he he, he wasn't he had been improperly briefed on that. Um, and so once we explained to him that this was a pharma company, it wasn't the chicken guy. Um, I wouldn't like to be the person that briefed him that way. I'm just saying I don't. We don't need to talk about who it was, but I'm I'm glad That's that right. I wasn't that person. I would be a little embarrassed by that. <laughs> That's right. And so uh, so we explained to him that what the case was about. He had some good questions. Um, he's a very bright guy. 
And, um, and so once we explained to him, this was a pharmaceutical company, Oxycontin, blah, blah, blah. He was like, go, go back to your district and do your case. Get out of my hair, you know? And so <laughs> we, I, I looked at, at Rick and said, let's run, let's get out of here yeah. before he changes his mind. Yeah. And, uh, you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So we chuckled about it, but it, but it was important because we were getting some initial pressure. He was getting some initial pressure from Purdue at that time. And this is and Purdue so, Pharma, not Purdue Chicken. Right. This is Purdue Pharma. Yeah. And so from their lawyers. And so when we walked out of that meeting and headed back to, to Rono, I mean, I knew at that moment they had they had crossed the line and, and we were now emboldened. Right. Because now I had a green light from the boss to go do the case. And it was, it was I felt really good about it at that point, even though the chicken thing happened. Right. At that point, you know, the DAG puts a name with a face and a case. And so anybody else who brings it up, he's going to say, well, I just met with John and I no, no, I gave these guys, these guys know what they're doing. They're fine. Right. And so I think it was the miscalculation that they just went to the justice department too soon with, with complaints that didn't match kind of who we were. Um, and it, and it, it gave us a little, uh, a little tailwind there to go back and really uh, uh, increase the pace of the case. You know, I just want to say, John, um, I want to commend you and acknowledge you for doing it as standardly as you did and really making sure that you dotted all the I's and you crossed all the T's because right. in a case like that, had you not, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a hothead, so I would kind of tend to be like a little <laughs> hotheaded on something like this and want to go yeah. start picketing Purdue. But the fact that you and Rick and Randy under well rick and randy under your direction really were very very proper and legal and exacting in everything that you did i think that's right. why you guys were successful in you know the yeah. outcome that you got yeah i mean i think these cases many most federal cases um you know if you back up most federal prosecutors 99.9 percent .9 are extremely professional, extremely well-read, uh, extremely bright, um, and, they, and they work very hard and they try to get it right. And they don't always get it right. And I, now as I've been a defense lawyer now for 13 years, I have seen where they haven't gotten it right. Mm -hmm. 
but by and large they do and they do because they work at it and you know the justice department is a, is a big organization it's got a lot of rules and regulations and taking the time to understand them to make sure you do it right um, always pays dividends at the end um, sometimes the pace of the cases can get frustrating because they do take a long time this one did yep. um, but you know, we just had a lot of good folks. And, and remember, when you take guys like Rick and Randy, who do a lot of cases, and kind of put them to the side and say, okay, you focus on this one thing, there's a whole bunch of other people now that have to pick up that that slack. Yep. So guys like Tom Bondrett that I mentioned, you know, he was a criminal chief, he was probably pound for pound, the best trial lawyer I've ever seen. And he did a ton of cases, um, Bill Gould, who I worked with, I've worked with him for 20 years. You know, he was a great um, uh, uh, lawyer and prosecutor who picked up a lot of the pace as well. Other people, Sharon Byrne, I can name them all. Yeah. But so it was a real office team. Um, you know, the, the dope sick tend to focus on those who were doing it, and that's fair. But the office itself really stepped up and, and, and did it in the agents as well. And I, and I appreciate that. Now, when you first um, went, tell, describe when you guys first met with the Purdue uh lawyers and and what that was about and because they made yeah. sort of an offer to settle didn't they they did um and that is that is typical uh, it's not unusual to come in with a pretty low offer um you know our view I, I think that pretty early in the case we had a sense of of what it could be and i think that we kind of held on to that now you never want to do that if the evidence changes or right. you know or, or or take a case to trial that you could lose because you don't really study the law of the facts but right. we understood that so when they came in i think their first offer was i don't know pretty low a couple million bucks or something and we politely told them no um, and was it their origination to come see you guys or would, or did you ask for them to come in? Yeah, I think the, 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 um, uh, the initial contact for me came through Mr. Giuliani. He, he was retained, uh, to represent them. And so I remember, you know, this was, uh, um, before cell phones were all that prevalent. I think I had one, but, um, and I got a call, uh, from my secretary that Rudy Giuliani had called. I kind of thought it was a joke, um, quite mm -hmm. frankly, um, but it turned out to be accurate. And so we met with him in our Charlottesville office uh, and then met with him a couple other times. Um, and, you know, his job as a defense lawyer was to try to get us to go away or to settle the case low. And, and I always viewed my job because he was a, you know, I mean, at that, I mean, he was Rudy Giuliani, right? He was a celebrity <laughs> he, lawyer. Was more than that he was united states attorney in manhattan that had yep. brought down the mob yep. he had been a very successful mayor of new york 9 11. Yep. i think he was running perhaps or thinking of running for president at the time and yep. i always felt like my job was to educate him on what this case was really about that if i could convince him that this was as serious as i knew it would be then i could convince him to go talk to the company to to come to terms with it um, do you think you did convince him I think it, at some point he kind of just stopped coming to the meetings. <laughs> and I think that that probably was why um, we had a couple of meetings where, you know, we just said, well, let me just show you the evidence. <laughs> let me show you what I, what I got. Um, and I think that that probably convinced him that this was more serious than perhaps he thought. I he never told me that, <laughs> but um, you know, we had videotapes of the Purdue reps being trained and in the tapes, they are training them to lie about the drug. 
I mean, that is just as good as evidence from a prosecutor. That's as good as it gets. That's right? pretty damning <laughs> evidence right there. It's pretty da- and, and from a corporate perspective, you know, it, uh, and then we had those lies in, uh, in every state in the union practically. Um, so, uh, you know, that was pretty good evidence. And I think that, um, that was, that was my objective as the prosecutor, as the United States attorney is to convince the company that this was, you know, they had to, they had to accept this because this was real. Um, as we always say, you know, there's a bad outcome and a real bad outcome and, um, you know, they could pick but it was not going to be easy. It was never going to be a $10 million fine. That was just never going to happen. And, um, and we, it takes several meetings, multiple meetings to, for people to really hear that. Did you get to meet, um, did you meet with Richard Sackler? I think Dope Six showed you guys having a meeting with him. I'm just curious if that really happened. Yeah, I never met with him. Okay. Um, and so, you know, our case really focused on the company and the management um, it didn't by that time Sackler had been out of it. I mean, we knew he was there. We knew they were an owner. Um, our evidence at the time didn't really penetrate to that level. And, um, you know, that's why we, you know, the main evidence against the three principals who pled uh, or who were convicted, you know, they went to Congress and testified about kind of when they first learned about the problems that were coming from the product. Uh, oxycontin and we had evidence that those were false statements but they lied they knew about it way earlier so and then they took that videotape and they sent it around to their off to 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 all their company employees saying look how you know we're out here fighting the fight but in sending that out they were they were uh, perpetrating the fraud (laughs) it was false and so I always felt like that was, if we had to go to trial, that that was good evidence that we could have used against them individually. I think that's probably why they accepted the criminal charge and pled to it. Um, but uh, yeah, I never met uh, one of the Sacklers. Just know. curious. So the criminal charge, was there a point at which maybe it wasn't going to be a criminal charge? Like Yeah, it was. It was, um, you know, I think that, you know, looking back, um, you always ask yourself, you know, what could you have done better? Um, coming out of the military and, and growing up the, 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 the son of the military officer, the Army is really good about doing something and then coming back and evaluating how could you have done it better? I think we did a pretty good job of explaining to the company our case. Sometimes I'm not sure that we did as an effective job of, of explaining our case to the Justice Department, the senior leaders, because they were resistant to it. Um, and, you know, at the time, I just think that I was, you know, young and felt like I had a righteous case and didn't want somebody at DOJ to kind of tell me what to do. I think if I were there now, I'd probably pull back, take more time and explain it to them. Um, but there were senior leaders at DOJ that um, were telling us that they weren't going to authorize us to charge the individuals with felonies. Now, I, I and I think the, the movie's accurate in a sense. I made it very clear I didn't need their permission. Um, but I also knew that, you know, <laughs> Department of Justice has its way of, of taking guys like me and making them former U.S. attorneys. And so right. um, and we, we knew we, we needed to land this thing successfully. We needed to convict the company. To me, the most important thing that came out of the guilty plea is that we were able to tell the world through an admission of guilt to a felony 
that what they were saying about the product was a lie. Right? So many people were being damaged. So many doctors were out there writing these scripts and we needed to be able to come out and say, wait a minute, hey, this is a lie. It doesn't do the things that they've been telling you and they're now admitting that and they're paying fines and people are you know, admitting to convictions and all these things. And so um, I always felt like that was the key thing we needed to do to try to stop it. And I think continuing. that's huge. I think that's huge because I think you know, <clears throat> they have to be held accountable. And that's basically what you proved is that they have right. to be held accountable and they cannot lie to the public, right? you know, and get away with it. That's right. And I think that, you know, in convicting the top three folks, um, ultimately they were, they were banned from the industry for, I forgot how many years, 12 years, effectively the rest of their careers. I thought that was an important message for senior leadership at a company that yep. does that kind of conduct. Yep. Um, and so, uh, but you know, we, there are folks who think we should have done more. Um, and I get that. Um, but again, for me, it was that messaging with the hope that once doctors realized they had been lied to for so long about it, that they would really change their behavior. You know, I think what you guys did is amazing. And I think that when people look at it and say, oh, well, you should have done more, you know, we are a culture that watches you know, all the movies about the Grisham books and, you know, and, and why couldn't there be some sort of, I don't know, magic bullet that you guys, guys could have had. But I think that it, I, I think that when, when people look at that, they are undervaluing what you did get done. And that's, that was what I was saying to you before is like, you did it right. You, you and Rick and Randy, you did everything you did it by the book and had you not done it by the book, you would have not, not what you would not have gotten the prosecution that you did get. And I don't think that's something to sneeze at. I mean, there are some people who are never going to be happy. Let's just face it. But I think what you guys did is it's amazing. And I think you also set a precedent for other similar cases. And I think that companies, in the same position as Purdue, who are marketing pharmaceuticals, I think they're going to think twice before they before they start lying, so as to build their profits. And I think right. that I think that's huge. I think so, and and so, you know, I, I I I do believe that it did affect that change. I think that one of the things that was part of the agreement was what they call a CIA or a corporate integrity agreement. And, and for the most egregious cases, we get these. And basically, it's like a monitorship for the company for like five years. And we kind of, we kind of hold these for the, for the worst of the worst. And for these, I always felt like the CIA was critical, and that was going to be the check on them to make certain that they, in fact, uh, complied, uh, that they were truthful about the product, that they, that they in fact, did it by the book. The reality is, is that they just ignored it. Um, the oversight wasn't very good. Um, the company went out and hired um, McKinsey um, to uh, consult with them on how to uh, circumvent the CIA and to continue, as, in their own words, turbocharge Oxycontin. And um, you saw the continued harm and what kind of where we are today. And so I, I do think that uh, the violation of the CIA, that's why I think they ultimately were convicted and will be put out of business. But they caused a lot of harm. You know, mm-hmm. the, the company um, should have, you know, complied, um, and it didn't. And um, 
that was a big, big failure on, on the oversight of that uh, guilty plea um, because, you know, that's where the real harm continued in my view. Yep. Well, I think while you said, you know, you always look back and, and want to figure out how you can do better. And I appreciate that because that's what professional people do. I just right. think you, you need to make sure that you, and I, I know you do, but you just need to make sure that you take a huge win on what you did get done, what you and your office got done. In addition to all of those who didn't work directly on this case, but had to carry the load of Rick and Randy so that Rick and Randy could spend the time on this case. And that's, good management from your end. So um, I just, I, I really applaud you. I, I appreciate so much you being willing to talk to us today. Um, I, I know you're a busy dude. Now you're a defense attorney, you said? That's you're on right. the other side? Right. Okay, I'm on you're the other the side. Other side of the courtroom. Okay. <laughs> but thank you so much. I really, I appreciate everything you did. Um, I think that what you guys did was, was only the beginning of this type of activity and there will be more. Well, you're very kind uh, to invite me and, you know, what you're doing uh, and Steve as well uh, in this space is so critical. You know, you got a lot of families out there hurting their children and their moms and dads. So many, it affects so many people. Um, and uh, I'm not so sure we as a country have really come to grips with that yet. I um, mean, you see, you know, 100,000 Americans dying every year from uh, opioid addiction or drug addiction, overdose, this fentanyl stuff is just deadly. Um, and it cuts across politics. I think, th I think the politicians want to help. I know they do, at least the ones I've seen, but it's so hard. Um, and, you know, I thought that Dopesick at the end did a good job in kind of showing, you know, where we go from here. I think buprenorphine um, is, is a, is a, plays an important role. And I know, I think Beth's next book is about that. And, and how we get out of this problem. But um, there's a lot of families that are hurting and I think your podcast and your efforts and Steve's and others uh, and Beth's quite frankly um, are critical because um, it affects so many people. One of my law partners, uh, his son uh, passed away uh, from, an from an opioid overdose and it was just tragic. He's such a you know, fine young guy and, and but um, you know, everyone is could be vulnerable to this. And so I just applaud your continuing efforts and appreciate what you've done and uh, allowing me to come on here uh, and talk about this case. Now that's, gosh, 20, I guess not quite 20 years old, but uh, it's getting a little age on it. But um, but the sad thing is that as a country, we're still fighting this out. Yep. And um, we've got a lot of work to do um, on it. But uh, folks like you all are, are out there still fighting it. And you know, for the patients who are listening, um, who are fighting it, you know, we just, our blessings are with you to give you that strength, um, uh, seek help. And, uh, uh, so that, uh, you can, you can defeat this and go live your life. And that's the goal. So anyway, I really appreciate what you've done. Thank you, John. We still are talking about the Hulu series, Dope Sick, and we, still are talking about Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers because the people who lost loved ones to Oxycontin overdoses and Oxycontin addiction, they are still looking for justice and we don't feel that they've gotten it. So we are going to continue and do some of these interviews. So that was John, John Brownlee and he was, um, yeah, he was the boss of Rick 
Mountain Castle and Randy, and they were the ones who were doing a lot of the on-the-ground work to um, prosecute, create the data so that they could prosecute, not create the data, research the information, collect all of the information, really do all the legwork in order for the Justice Department to prosecute Purdue Pharma there. I think I said that right. Anyway, thank you so much for listening today. We've got another interview that we'll have next week. Please, 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 I want to echo what John said is, you know, we pray for you. We want you to get clean and sober. We want your loved ones to get clean and sober. And please reach out if you need help. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.